0: If recent events have proven anything, it is how reliant we are on each other. I speak not only of the connectedness between peoples, but also of nature and the planet. As big as this world may seem, it's felt a lot smaller and more fragile than many might have imagined. There are many photographers who have made it their life's work to remind us of that fragility often turning their lenses to the darker aspects of our humanity, as well as the price of our actions and our inactions. It's their photographs that have helped to create awareness and affect change. The best of them serve to remind us that we each have a role to play during our borrowed time on this planet. Colin Findling has spent his life exploring that reliant connectedness as a photographer and a musician. His environmental work in Antarctica and West Virginia and conflict in Sudan and Cambodia have been informed by a compassionate heart. He and his work challenges us to take actions that are as good and as exceptional as we believe ourselves to be. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, I'm excited to sit down and talk with you.
1: Um, yeah, man, I'm disappointed you can't see me. I'm all dressed in my finest and freshly shaved <laughs> out of respect for you.
0: Yeah, and doing, and looking at your work and and seeing some of the presentations you've done, and just getting a, a a really good understanding of you know what your career has looked like. I was really inspired, not just by the work, which I think is is exceptional. But I thought that you were one of the few photographers who focuses on the things that you that you do in terms of the environment, cultural the impact of social economic issues around the world. And one of the things that you're really adept at is providing a sense of connectedness between yeah. all these what normally would be disparate things in the minds of many of our of us Westerners. Mm, you know, because yeah. we tend to have a, such a myopic and self-absorbed obsession with the world revolving around us. Yeah. Yeah. That we tend to sort of exclude things that we don't feel have a direct impact on us, even though it does. And, and I don't think that, at least for, for for Western people, that that's something, that that awareness that you have that comes naturally. I think it's something that, at least for me, has been sort of a learned. I've had to unlearn that kind of way yeah. of thinking and open yeah. myself up. And I'm wondering for you how did that sense of that connectedness that's
1: you know that's that i see in your work how did you come to have that yourself it's kind of interesting here just to kind of explore this topic right out of the out of the out of the gate here but it's just an overall feeling that we are all one connected human being we are all one connected earth country there's no difference between myself and someone in rwanda a first nations person in canada a polar bear. We're all part of this great mother nature. We're all part of this great earth. And I see it all as our earth, our collective future, our collective history that belongs to each and every one of us. And all of us have a vital role to play in this world. So for me, it's I see that connection point. I see no difference between a billionaire and someone who's on the streets having a tough time in their life. We're all these powerful magnetic souls that are all on our journey in this world. And I respect and have extraordinary admiration for really each and every one of us who are on
0: this path. Was that something you always had, or did you have a moment of epiphany when you were younger that sort of allowed you to see the world in in that particular way?
1: It's definitely something that was imparted to me from the streets of Belfast, from my times and experiences in Sarajevo, some of those really powerful experiences in Haiti in the early 90s. When you're just experiencing something that is so powerful and so beyond anything that you could even imagine you'd be confronting in your life, and the humility that is absorbed through every cell and fiber in my body, as I photograph and spend time with extraordinarily powerful people that, frankly, have the power, have strength, and have courage that I do not possess, I'm simply an observer and a witness in that sense, and I'm a part of this journey that they're on and the experience of their life and you know ultimate humility to me comes from there in the eyes of the people that I photograph and really understanding at the depths what their day-to-day reality is like and then how I come back to this first world it's it's a difficult thing it was brutal that coming back and landing at LAX and coming back into this world leaving what I just left behind Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is extraordinarily difficult to say the least. I remember crying, literally walking down the aisles of a grocery store and looking at their sushi and all these meats and everything. It's like, my God, and I'm in, you know, so many people, It's they're, they're dependent on what food they can scrounge. They're mm-hmm. taking their lives in their hands, trying to get water for their family in Sarajevo, hopefully not being shot and killed. And you just understand life in such a different manner that it really comes down to a picture of water. Feeding your family for that day or providing one meal and then coming back here to realize, you know, what we have at our at our fingertips. Um, so it starts to really bend and the beginning years of breaking me to a completely different understanding of how the majority or have, you know, a lot of other people live around the world. Well, that's an interesting term you said, breaking you. You
0: know, as if that you had uh, basically a foundation that you basically had to sort of destroy in order to build a a new one. Would that be an accurate way of describing it?
1: Yeah. I also think that for me, I had an extraordinary, powerful desire within me to witness firsthand the history as it unfolds, being in apartheid South Africa before Nelson Mandela ascended to presidency. A lot of the different war zones that I was in and out of The genocide in Rwanda, Darfur, wars in the Middle East, a lot of these experiences really, you know, changed me immensely and really broke down the nature of what I thought reality was for me and for my family and what that world means to me and how it's manifested within me and how it has indeed, you know, changed the way that I view the world. How did did you see your work
0: or hope for your work to be used during those those early years of your career? And how has it changed? I mean,
1: what was really interesting is that one of the first major magazines that I worked with was a um, magazine that you might have, depending on where you were at school, was called Scholastic.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. So
1: that was the magazine that went out to students. I received it when I was a student. So I ended up really establishing a great relationship with the editor there, Lee Byer. And I really started to take on a lot of these projects around the world on children luckily it was just a phone call that I made at random I mean back then we had something about three inches thick called the photographer's market (laughs) and Mm -hmm. in that book were all the pages so they had this is what this magazine does this is the phone number this is who the editor is so that was what you had and just cold called him on a Saturday he picked up the phone I brought in my work and I'd written you know a paragraph introduction to this young boy that I met in Belfast on a project I was working on on Falls Road, which was really the epicenter for a lot of what was going on there, and um, had that paragraph about him, large paragraph about his life, and he read it and he said, "You know, this is really something else. What you've combined with your writing with your photography is like. Do you think you can go back to Belfast and maybe interview some of these children, make the photographs, and then combine the two into one story?" And that was like, "Wow, my gosh, my first assignment." i'm heading back to you know marching season in july in belfast and that started off that first project then moved outwards to so many projects after the fall in eastern europe chernobyl sarajevo kenya Mm -hmm. haiti and it moved out to all these other stories and that started these really powerful stories for me telling the, the stories of children and their experiences in a lot of these you know tumultuous places so i happened to come into favor there at Scholastic and was given a lot of these assignments and would go out and create all these projects and bring back these stories. So that was really what started it was the um, Scholastic magazine and telling the stories of children. What were some of
0: the more important lessons that you learned from that first assignment that informed everything that you did subsequently?
1: For me, it's a, a vulnerability that is one of those intangible ideas that needs to be broached in who you are as a person and what I give of myself to this story. I'm not there simply making photographs. It's something a lot different. It's an exchange of our souls and the depths of wanting to understand who and what they are and then the depths of understanding even them wanting to understand me. As young Patrick asked me, You know, how long will it take me to walk to the United States if I start now? Mm -hmm. So it's just this, this, this innocence in this young boy whose father was arrested for murder the night before I met him. He's one of, he's got four or five older sisters and it's just him. And he's this young boy on the streets of Belfast. And the first thing I, I saw, the first photographs I took of him was him running across the street with stolen hubcaps in his hand that I just saw him pulling off a car. So then he puts the hubcaps down and comes running over to him and asks me, right, he says, give me some food, give me some money, or give me a cigarette. <laughs> and those were his first three requirements of me. And it's like, it's not my thing, but who are you and what are you doing? And what is your life like? And it became that first, you know, depths of understanding what is your life like? What are your experiences? What do you feel? How do you absorb what's going around you? How does it change you as this young boy? And how do you describe what it is that you see happening around you? Yeah. So it's just the beginnings of that dropping into that space. One, asking questions because I need to write a story. And then also making, you know, photographs and and having the difficulty too, you know, of having to cross over to the other side. You know, I need to have the Protestant perspective. This is not just a Catholic perspective in Belfast. This is a Protestant experience as well. It's the same thing when I was in Israel in the Middle East working in that war. I I crossed over both sides, spending time with the Israeli Defense Force, spending time on the other end of those bullets and rubber bullets and tear gas on the Palestinian side in a place, you know, called Ramallah. So always trying to understand in South Africa, going to Brise and understanding what was going on for a different perspective of people, you know, than understanding the true South African experience for the people who are native to South Africa. So it's just, it's always trying to absorb both sides, going in completely non political per se and non judgmental, but wanting to understand the depths of both conversations and then hearing it for myself and then absorbing those ideals, those thoughts and. Absorbing them into my life and taking all the incredible wisdom that was given to me. And gosh, so many conversations have I absorbed so much of the world's impacts and sometimes the difficulty of their lives and how they live. Did you find that because of the way that you were
0: approaching it, that the story that you reminded, that the narrative
1: that you came in with, was not an accurate representation of what was going on? Yeah, that was a really big thing, I must admit, and that's something that I really needed to see for myself as it unfolded and the truth revealed itself to me when I was there. It's like, this is not really the story that we've been told maybe in Western media. This is a different reality. This isn't really what's happening. This is what's happening on the streets. This is what the people are experiencing. This is the people that are not being reached by the food, by, you know, assistance from, you know, a Doctors Without Borders or Care. And a lot of these places and a lot of these people that needed help and needed to tell the truth of their story. And that was the most important part is to be on the receiving end, honestly, of that confession of, hey, this is what's happening to me. This is my experience. This is my life. And it becomes a huge responsibility. I remember a story in Haiti that I did in the early '90s. This is after Cedras came to power, and you know he removed Aristide, and sadly he was able to check all of the uh, the voting records, of course, and was able to see who voted for Aristide, and those people were basically excommunicated from the city, excommunicated from medical help in this little village up in the highlands in Haiti called Berre. I mean they. There was a mumps epidemic that went through there and pretty much wiped out 80, 90% of the entire children from the village. This one man that I talked to lost three children in two weeks, and he was carrying his last child on his back down to a clinic that was, you know, 14 miles away that was closed and had no medication for him. So when that man tells my interpreter, you know, I could tell it was something powerful and intense, and I just, I broke with the interpreter and I said, what was it that he just shared with you at that moment? And he said, um, please tell the world we are the ones who are suffering. So it puts that in a sense, you know, honestly, a powerful burden that this is part of my story that I need to be able to get into Western media. I need to be able to share with people. I need to be able to get this man help. I need to, he's got one surviving yeah. child. And this is my responsibility here. This is what I've been given. And this is the charge that this man has given me as I've been given in hundreds of places throughout the world echo that same concept of please tell the world and that world gets absorbed through my lens of my camera and then goes back you know with me and then it's my my passion my life my duty my responsibility to share that in the most powerful way that i can to represent if i can be so bold, the people who have given me their life and their soul and the transmission of this photograph that represents them and their reality yeah I can imagine and you can correct me if I if I'm
0: wrong. And you've described it as people giving you the gift of their stories and, and and their photographs to you and that the responsibility that you feel to tell these stories sort of surmounts any sort of feelings of of guilt or maybe even shame at the wealth, you know, all the advantages that you have personally that the onus of what you've been given helps you to sort of overcome those feelings that are really a little more self-conscious, if that's if that's the right word.
1: Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to live with. I mean, it's, it's one of the most um, difficult things that even wells me up now talking to you. It's, I'm the one who gets to get on a plane and leave. Mm-hmm. And that's the most difficult thing for me, always, is looking out that window seat, looking down at what I'm leaving behind and the lives that I'm leaving behind. So there is, and also I feel that I do leave part of my soul there with them. That's part of the soul exchange. That's part of the, the gift of photography is that I give something of myself and I receive something from these incredibly powerful men and women and children who are you know facing incredibly difficult times in their lives. And they share this with me through that gift of a photograph and it is a huge responsibility and it does impact me greatly. And I do feel that you know sadness. There's been many, God, so many times, pretty much a lot of times, those first 11, 12 years of my career were really, really tough. And I spent a lot of, uh, shed a lot of tears looking out plane windows and um, being grateful for the experience, but having been incredibly moved. And it's taken me another 20 odd years to just to process what it is that I've seen, because I certainly was well moved into the the PTSD and the trauma that I experienced
0: mm-hmm. in a lot of
1: these places that I never dealt with at that time, and because I didn't know one how to, what it was about, how it was going to affect me, and um, you know ultimately the price I would pay as witness. So how did you
0: how did you deal with the ramifications of all that? You mentioned PTSD or the
1: things that you used to help you. <sighs> one was the. Uh, The ability that I was able to manifest in my career was the ability to keep moving. And somehow the next story, the next project was already building. And at that point I knew a certain amount of stories that I was gonna be involved with in the upcoming six months. I'm gonna be returning to this project, returning to that project. I wanna start a new series. I have an exhibition coming up. So there was always this commotion of energy Mm -hmm. that allowed me to somehow tamp that down for a number of years. Um, obviously escapes alcohol and, you know, other certain attributes, um, lent themselves, uh, to the weight of, um, what it is that I'd seen, but of course that's never a cure. That's, uh, at times becomes an amplifier, and um, we end up becoming more sad and more um, depressed, um, thinking about, you know, the lives that I've left behind and the fortune of, of my life. I mean, that's part of the strange thing, you know, is, is walking away from some of these places that were so unbelievably deeply, it's not, it's, it's so far past moving, so far past life-altering, and in many ways, life-destroying. Because everything you thought you knew about the world has just been erased in the last ten steps. Yeah. As you step into, you know, a church in Niarabuye, where I photographed, I was maybe one of a handful of people that ever was able to gain access to that place. But during the height of the genocide, they, they slaughtered, um, they slaughtered ten thousand people in that church that were there seeking protection and a safe haven. You know, walking into those rooms and you could see the baptismal altar that they had used to uh, decapitate many of the people. And the bodies, and um, I'm here completely alone. My interpreter's a mile and a half down the road in the car. He doesn't want to come anywhere near. So I'm completely on my own, um, walking through this, trying to understand what it is that I'm seeing. The brutality, the cruelty, is beyond savage. So for me to take that in, and to absorb that through my camera and into who I am as a human being. You know, things like that are, um, you know, I will never leave those rooms. I will never leave that experience. That experience will never leave me. A lot of these powerful experiences, obviously, are with me for the rest of my life. And they're still, um, you know, powerfully moving. And I'm still working on getting through, you know, some of, what I experienced in those places, you know, and it's been, um, as much as I've written about it, it's still there, it's still very powerful, it still is a, an enormous magnet with incredible strength yeah. that can pull me. Despite the fact that some of these events that
0: you've photographed have been so dark and are so reflective of the, the worst parts of humanity, you've also witnessed moments of great bravery, joy, unexpected, you know, happiness. And I'd love to hear about those moments that you've experienced during such times when you were covering such difficult stories. Is there one that particularly stands out for you?
1: In some of these instances, I'm also working with um, NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations, um, like Doctors Without Borders, CARE, you know, a lot of these incredible organizations who are extending, you know, and those are those are some of the most powerful moments in Darfur. You know, this uh, woman who was um, really, really struggling in her life and may or may not even make it. And this extraordinary nurse on her hands and knees, um, giving her this sponge bath in Darfur and the joy that was felt, that was exchanged. This woman knowing that what she was doing and what she was providing are just uh, extraordinary moments of one gift of a human being to another. As we are seeing right now in our situation that we're going through is this extraordinary strength and courage of our caregivers. And those have been some of the most remarkable experiences. If anything, if I wasn't a photographer, I wished I would have been a doctor or a a person in those capacities to provide that to people and to give them that sense of love, that sense of being cared for when they're going through extraordinarily difficult times is the power of caregivers. Those are some of those really powerful moments to me. There's also in Rwanda, it's reuniting children with their families that they were split up during the genocide. The boy was someplace else. The girl was someplace else. The mother was someplace else. The father is no longer here. And seeing those reunification meetings for a mother who thought guaranteed that She'd lost everything in her life, and she had the hope of finding her one child. And that little boy was, you know, in a clinic himself being cared for, and he had no idea what happened to him, his family, his life. And those reunifications were unbelievably powerful and resonating on such a powerful level and gave, you know, solace to me for the gift of who we are as humanity, who we are in mankind and the extraordinary potential that we have of love in this world. And that is the most important thing, is that love that we share and give to one another in all times of need and times of normalcy. I think we're learning a different normal right now. And um, that definition of love is certainly changing for all of us.
0: As much as you may be known for your photographic work, uh, you're also a musician. And <laughs> yeah, I always love talking to people who have... Uh, who express their creativity in uh, multiple ways. Mm -hmm. But tell me about the role of music in your life, because I know you have made it integral to some of your photographic work and and the film work that you've done. But speak to me in terms of why music is such an essential part of who you are.
1: Music to me, in my experience, in the way that I see it and feel it, music is the voice of the photographs. It's the voice that I cannot bring. It's the intonality and it's the frequency that music brings sonically to an experience. And I think it has the ability to, if you will, rise above the normal din of what we experience in our lives. I mean, that's the joy of going to a concert. Mm -hmm. It's the energy, it's the sound waves that are coming from that experience, the sound waves that are coming from speakers. Then you have 500 to 2,000 people in an audience all vibrating on a similar frequency, all there, all excited, so there's this incredible energy it comes from those people that's delivered through that music. So it's a very sonic experience. So for me to explore, you know, what that means to me, you know, is a journey that I really felt I needed to go on. I mean, it honestly started when I was probably 17 and I started, I was the lead singer and a rhythm guitarist in a, in a band. And that's really was the beginnings of some of my first extraordinary experiences of music and joy performing for an audience creating the music, carrying the frequency, carrying the sonic tone of what songs we were sharing. Um, And after a couple of years, it just, um, I was at UC Santa Barbara, and it just sort of started to slowly move in the other direction. And it was something that I wasn't going to be able to pursue. You know, I thought, well, God, you know, do I really want to pursue music? And I could be on the road for the rest of my life. And It's not maybe where I want to be, so I'm not going to choose music. I'm going to let that go for right now, that dream. And it was kind of crazy that I ended up doing the exact same thing anyway for 30 years, (laughs) being on the road and doing everything I didn't want to do. But it was the bass player about seven, eight years ago who was clearing out his closet. He was getting ready to move. He's like, man, you're not going to believe what I found. It's one of our old tapes, one of us playing live. It's like, oh, Jesus, you're kidding. Release, really? like, yeah, man, you sound great. We, we should definitely check this out. So I went over there, we played it, listened to it, and it was just the light bulb that went off. It's like, oh, my God, yeah. Combining those two, I need to go back to music. I need to somehow integrate this into my life and into my experiences and what it is that I'm creating. And that really became the starting off point. And then I worked with another great um, record producer and engineer, and that really started that direction. And we created a lot of songs together, but we, you know, we owned them both collectively 50-50, but he's like, look, you know, for you to really do this, you're going to have to do what I know you don't want to do, which is you need to learn this unbelievably complex program for recording all of your own music. You need to build out your own entire studio, all your instruments, play every note yourself, create and write, engineer and produce and mix everything on your own. So you have 100% ownership of all of it. That was like, wow. Okay. That was, that was definitely deep. I, yep. You're probably right. You're right. (laughs) And it's, yeah. So then I had to, you know, really take his words of advice and, um, step into that space and, um, embrace what was going to be a huge challenge to me, which is learning, you know, Logic Pro X is when I record all of my music in my studio so it's an unbelievably complex program not to mention learning all the other software of all the other instruments and then the other guitars and basses and drum patterns and everything else that i was building into certain songs um it was um 10 to 12 hours a day seven days a week about a year and a half for me to get it so that's kind of what it took for me to launch that part of my you know space where obviously now i'm 60 70 songs into you know all of that um, you know open arena and it's led to a lot of different experiences for me which have been really really powerful and really um, magnetic in what they do i
0: suspect though that you had you could have come up with any excuse as to why not to do that because <laughs> you had you had so much you already were doing and yeah. you know so what what was the determining thing in your in your head that said Yeah, I have all these excuses why I can't do it, but I can't afford not to do it. What was that?
1: It's the idea of moving into a different space where you have a bit of, you know, trying to move out into something that is a different experience. I do feel moving forward in these coming years, whatever that's going to be, you know, I think creating a multimedia experience for the people who are going to enjoy your work or absorb your work, I think having writing, having the music, having the photographs, video, whatever it is that I choose to incorporate, I think expressing that entire medium through one person, I think is that future of where we're going as creatives. And as creatives, I think it's just us willing to take on that challenge saying, hey, not great at this right now, could be good at it in a year, I'm gonna give this time, I'm gonna do the writing, I'm gonna put in the effort, I'm gonna put in the proverbial 10,000 hours to move through this to get to the other side to see what's there so that when I'm putting my work out there and sharing it, I'm at least trying for myself personally to push the medium of where I'm finding myself, which is just photography. That rose into the paintings that I was doing, where I was gonna take my photographs through the paintings. So it's just a lot of these manifestations started to happen you know, for me probably eight, 10 years ago with the paintings and then where it was gonna explore. And you know, you never knew where the end result was gonna be, of course, but that's not you know the reason for the journey. The journey is this incredible creative exploration that you're on regardless of what's at the end of that road. There doesn't have to be, I'm gonna get paid, I'm gonna get an exhibition in a museum, I'm gonna do this. It's for the glory, it's for the pure joy of exploring something creative, because at, at the core, we're all creatives. A lot of that gets shut down in our upbringing in school and we maybe don't take the classes or get the support that we want or just sometimes have that faith and courage in ourselves do you know what i'm going to break the rules i'm going to go outside this box i don't want to be stuck in a in a period like a picasso like a rose period or a blue period i just wanted to feel that essence of moving outside and beyond and that's where the painting and the writing and the music all came from was that wellspring of that desire for me you know to want to explore the outer reaches of creativity for me and what that meant i'm
0: sad to have to report that a former guest of the show reginald campbell passed away this week after a long battle with cancer we interviewed reginald back in episode 397 I recorded my conversation with him as part of my participation at the 4x5 Photo Fest in San Antonio, Texas in 2017. At that time, Reginald had just completed treatment for a previous bout with cancer, and was hoping to return to his life as a husband, father, and photographer. Unfortunately, his cancer occurred, and despite his best effort and those of his caregivers, he passed away. In my brief time with him then and since I will always remember how well he was thought of as a human being, as much as he was touted as a photographer. It was his generous humanity that made him a valuable presence in so many people's lives, especially those in the photo community. If you want to help the family during this time, you can do so by purchasing some of his work. It will help them during this difficult time and will provide you a way to give back, not only to a good photographer, but a good man. You'll find the links in the show notes or please visit regcampbellphoto.com. Thanks. The, the painting, the, the music, the photography, all are really technical artistic practices, but the best work that I've always resonated with has always and often been work that I just feel is very genuine. And I don't even want to use the word original because I don't think anything is really original, but there's such a genuineness that I just feel. I was listening uh, to music this morning when I was having coffee and it was just, I was just listening to it and just sort of taking it in and I could just, I could just feel it. And I was thinking uh, uh, about my own photographic work over the past year, and that's something that I've been uh, more in the pursuit of. Yeah, seeing more of myself in in my images. Not so they're just not just that they're nicely composed. They have nice content. It's lightly lit. You know, I felt like I want to see some of myself in there, and I think that that's probably one of the most difficult things. To do not only in terms of making the choice, but in terms of listening to that bullshit meter, you know, (laughs) that that wants you to tell you, oh, this is this is good technically and all that other stuff, but you also know that your heart's not there. And considering that you're doing the music, you're doing the painting, you're doing the photography, you're doing the writing, how do having the ability to sort of express yourself in so many different mediums help you to tap into that awareness that you can't you can't bullshit about the work that you, you're creating
1: <laughs> yeah that's a that's a powerful question with a lot of um <laughs> with a lot of depth and uh, emotional energy in there it's um one of the most difficult things and it was for me profound personally was writing it so a lot of understanding the emotions of what I was doing in my photography. Some of those lessons didn't come for 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, which is, I find very interesting because I was writing about my experiences in children. You know, I had an upbringing that was, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. I wasn't allowed to take art classes. I wasn't allowed to take music classes. I wasn't allowed to take piano or saxophone or any painting classes or... So it was something that I had to fight for, really fight for. And that came in a number of different fashions. You know, once eventually I flunked out freshman year of college, my parents gave up on me. I was on my own, that was it. I decided I was gonna go back to college, but on my own terms. For the first time in my life, I took the classes that I wanted to take in sophomore year in college. Mainstream and modern art, music theory, astronomy, and the other courses that were gonna need for me to get in to transfer to my dream, which is UC Santa Barbara. So I paid for all my own classes, paid for my own books, took what I wanted, and started writing with my left hand instead of my right hand. Mm -hmm, Yeah, Because I was born left-handed, and I was not allowed to be left-handed, so I was forced to become right-handed. So I had a number of different uh, deficiencies growing up from undiagnosed dyslexia, I had a really difficult uh, stutter or stammer, if you will. So I had a lot of difficulties in school. But that moment, changing right hand to left hand and riding left handed changed everything you know, in my life. And from that point, I went on to probably a 3.75 GPA and transferred straight into UC Santa Barbara and 3.85 taking five classes at UCSB. And it was like, wow, okay, I've gone from someone who is 300 points lower than the worst SAT score I've ever heard from someone else, to now I'm at UCSB taking five classes on the Dean's List with a 3.85 GPA. So it really manifested and really changed. And those observations, again, came to me so many years later when I finally got to take my own courses. Transferring that into photography, all the children that I was photographing, I realized writing those stories, it came to me 15, 20 years later of writing. It's like, my God, I'm really photographing myself. Oh, wow. And I'm giving these children the ability to speak through my lens. And my first book was called The Unheard Voice. And that was the voice that I gave to those children to speak to the world through my lens, the voice that I never had as a child, that it was like, oh, gee, this is, uh, okay. And those words just come from the page under the pen. And it's just, okay, now I understand something about myself that I never understood before. I'm really photographing myself. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you look at photography, and sometimes people fall into a certain brand of photography, and it's maybe what they do, or it's how they make a living. But, you know, like a lot of the rock and roll photographers and the Jim Marshalls, they kind of look like roadies anyway that would have been working for the Rolling Stones. (laughs) And this is who they are. And then the really intense obsessive compulsives or maybe still life photographers and all the different people that photograph joy and kids and they're more of a childlike personification of who they are. It's like, God, are we all just photographing ourselves? And this stoicism, this joy, the passion, and sometimes the internal struggle that we're photographing in other people when we're really photographing ourselves in an attempt to try and understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. So photography is this incredibly spiritual journey that is so far beyond what the actual photograph is when you peel back these layers and I'm understanding it's like this is who I am. I am this child, this child is me. We are one of the same universal spirit of humanity. That is not male. That is not female. That is this universal, infinite soul that we are all a part of. So, as I photograph them, I photograph myself. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff is really powerful for me, and it comes from me in a in a silent language. You know, when I was in photographing the children with Agent Orange, you know, one I never should have been let into that place. As the woman said, there's no way you're getting in here. No one's actually been in here in probably a year and a half. It takes nine months or a year to get approval. You know, long and short, I had one of my books with me. I had the right interpreter that I very specifically looked for who would be my voice. Because I knew it would be very difficult to get in here. Long and short, miracle upon miracles, I get into this place. And it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's soul melting. These powerful lives being lived inside of these rooms with these children with, with unbelievable deformities, and most of them with this resilient joy that's palpable. And for the first time in that room, you know, I felt myself crying behind my camera. And it was um, it's like, wow, this is really you know, a powerful, powerful experience for me. And I put the camera down, put it in the bag, took the cameras outside the room and left them in the hallway. And then I went back in to sit with these children, which is something I don't Always get a chance to do and to sit with them and to rub their hair and just to hug them and to hold them. It was a very powerful experience for me. And when I stood there, there's the little girl, both of her legs are gone, her arms gone. She has a fused hand. She maybe has half a forearm, is all she has. And she's lying on her side and she's looking right into my eyes. And we're just two feet away, looking into the eyes of this soul, this magnificent soul, and seeing her there. And then in my mind, telling her that you are a powerful, extraordinary angel who has fallen to this earth. I respect, I honor, I love you. Your journey in this earth is such about power and courage, and I honor you in your journey here in this world. Mm-hmm. And I stood up and I looked into the eyes of each one of the children, and all of them were looking at me. And I said the same thing You were all incredible angels. You fall into this earth, and you have the power and the strength and the courage to live these lives. And I honor you in this moment, in this time. I see you. You are loved. And the children collectively started emanating this moan, this type of groan that they all did together. And it was just wow. Wow. There is this communication so far out beyond words and emotions and language and I have to feel that my soul does speak and it speaks a language that we don't as humans understand but it speaks for me in those situations and in countless others that there's this incredible you know universe we hold within us and this power that we hold and it gets expressed in those times and in you know certainly others in my career where something similar has happened. But they've been very powerful experiences and a deep confirmation of the soul and a deep confirmation of the love for our fellow human beings that you know I carry in my heart each and every day. Yeah. And I've been, I've been given, honestly, I've been given 10 PhDs by the world. You know I, I went out there leaving UC Santa Barbara. I went out into that first project in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It's like the real education begins now. This is the education of the world. This is the education of the people, the education of humanity through their soul into mine. And this is where I learn, you know, the truth and the depths and um, the bright, beautiful moments of, of joy. And, um, you know, some really powerful lessons that I've learned that have been given to me by the extraordinarily you know, powerful people in, in this world. I mean, I feel so unbelievably blessed To have had the experience that I've had and to have seen what it is that I've seen over 30 years. And these experiences, you know, I've even had with with animals as well. I was photographing the the polar bears up close to the Arctic Circle. Some of the others, but there were only 10 of us in these little tundra buggies. There's one or two companies that can go out a couple hundred miles out onto the tundra, way out to the Hudson to see where the polar bears gather know once a year before they go out onto the ice and then they're gone to hunt ring seals. And a lot of the photographers there were, of course, nature photographers with 600 millimeter lenses. And, you know, the longest I had was a 200. So for me, they were getting great shots. And a lot of my shots were, you know, far off and in the distance. And I was out in the back. I didn't want their energy. And I was out on the back on my own, basically completely freezing in the Arctic Circle in November with my jacket on. I can't photograph with gloves, completely, entirely frozen out there. And this one bear was sitting off about 100 yards in the distance. And I just said to her in my silence, I said, "Um, I'm here to tell the story of your life. I'm here to share what you're experiencing with the rest of the world. I just wanna know that I'm here for you, that that I honor you and that I'm here to understand your power in this world and what's happening to you. And that bear literally got up, walked all the way over to the back of where I was photographing the tundra buggy. I'm 10 feet up and I'm protected and I'm very high. And she came over and sat five or six feet away from me and just looked up at me. And I was able to make, you know, some powerful photographs of her. And I continued that conversation with her because they say some, you know, that potentially First Nations people do choose to incarnate through polar bears and they don't have another human experience to incarnate through a polar bear to understand and to feel what the polar bear is experiencing. So for me to experience that, you know, in the animal world as well, that this bear came over as really as witness, saying this is who I am, these are my images, this is who I am, this is what I am. Hmm. So, it's sometimes moving experiences like that really confirm for me this, this deeper mystery of who and what we are and this beautiful spiritual nature of, you know, the world and the gifts that it's given me. So, it's, um, yeah, long kind of answer there. Sorry about that. No, it's beautiful. I, I, I like every bit of it.
0: But uh, let's make time to talk a little bit about your Heart, Heart Road project.
1: Um, Heart's Road is just the amalgamation of, you know, the work. It's combining, you know, music and where that bridges with photography and the written word as well. There's a lot of different ways that um, that I want to um, share this journey. And I think part of that is this, you know, Heart's Road experience. And it is. This life for me has been a journey of the heart. It's the journey of my soul each of our lives is the journey of each of our souls. So for me, I just, for some reason, labeled it hearts. And it's just that essence of who we are in that journey of the soul in the 30 years that I've you know, been on this journey of what ultimately comes down to at times self-discovery and who and what I am and what it is that drives and motivates me. So part of this are, I've written probably 46 um, essays that really dig in deep to the experiences and lessons learned in Sarajevo, Rwanda, Gauchos in, the Ar- in Argentina working in the, the Pampas, the AIDS temple in Thailand, Agent Orange, I mean all of these different experiences. So I've taken 46 of those stories and really mapped those out in a, you know, written form, you know, so that that you know, to me is is an expression. It's a it's a way in, you know, for what it is I experienced in those situations, and um, you know, some of the powerful you know lessons that um, I learned along that way, and then a lot of it too is combining the um, the music with what it is that I'm that I'm doing, and that becomes, again, that um, the voice of the photographs, and that's really what um, what carries through with the ultimate you know for me you know manifestation of my work and where i want to take it what surprised you or what did you
0: rediscover as a result of putting putting in the work for this
1: i can say that certainly my voice has changed and the way that i write has changed over the years as well which is why some of these essays a version of them i might have have written before but i decided to scrap all of that and start over again. It was a tremendous amount of work, to say the least. And it really came informed, to be frank, with a uh, discussion that I had with um, a doctor. And I went in for some uh, test results. And I was back east getting a lecture at a couple of different colleges. It was like a mini tour. i just come off the stage and I received a phone call from the West Coast that was very, um, Okay, this is unusual. It's ten o'clock at night here on the East Coast, and she's phoning, and she says, "Well, I've I've done a temporary, you know." She's like, "I really don't have any other way to tell you this. I feel there's a very strong chance that you have um, fourth or fifth stage um, cancer. I would say liver, or you know, it could be kidney, but I would more than likely say liver, and uh, you may have just six months to live. And as soon as you get back from this." trip back east, I recommend that you see an oncologist uh, immediately and um, have a battery of tests done and find out where you are and what's going on. But um, you know, I'm sorry to give you this news. So um, obviously that was very intense, to say the absolute least. But the idea as well was, um, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do with six months? And I look at all my work that's unfinished pieces that are halfway done, pieces I've wanted to do that aren't even started, my book on rock and roll. It's like, okay, where can I shave time? And uh, eight hours of sleep, you know, very quickly became four hours of sleep. Uh, I went in to the oncologist, got the, um, you know, that was going to take a week to get the results. So so I did set on that in that time. It's like, okay, if I've got six months left to live, I'm going to give up sleeping and I need to work. 16 18 hours a day seven days a week period long and short it took almost three and a half weeks to get the results back and the results came back yeah it was pins and needles i mean i didn't tell my parents i didn't want to tell my parents i shared it with my of course my um significant better and she was right there she's as powerful as any human being i've ever met she was right there with me and um We got the results back and it was, uh, okay, it was a misdiagnosis, you're okay, you're in the clear, what this is is something else. And it was, you know, me at the receiving end of, okay, this is what I did in the last three odd weeks here. Okay, this is an experiment. I'm gonna continue with this. I'm gonna work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, get four hours of sleep, and I'm gonna work through this, pretending as if I did have six months left to live.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's what pushed out so much of the creativity and so much of the exploration time, because I was literally I'd be in bed about 530 in the morning and I would get up around 930 with my usual period of sleep and worked on that level for about a year and a half. So I spent a year and a half at four hours of sleep until basically I had a you know very intense uh, emotional um, you know breakdown. And it came to an end, that period of unbelievable creativity. I mean, I've worked harder in the last two years, and I've probably worked the last 30 in terms of the output and what I've generated, the words, the music. I mean, I have so much music and so many different books I've already started writing and so many books that the music book has done. So all of my journeys with various people and photographing Roger Daltrey and spending the day in the studio with Beck and all the other experiences that I've been really incredibly blessed to have, you know, put all of that work down and put it together and, um, you know, manifested a tremendous amount in that period of time, then paid a price for it, dealing with that. And, uh, in therapy for the first time in my life, dealing with a lot of the, um, the, the trauma that I've experienced. So it's been an incredibly beautiful year of rediscovery of my life, this new journey, and where I go forward from here and the, you know, the path that I take going forward is extraordinary. And I'm incredibly blessed, you know, to have these these moments and this time to explore that as well as I'm incredibly blessed to talk with you and honored to share time with you. I so enormously respect what you've done over these years, what you've created in your work and what you've created in your podcasts. And... The journey that you know you've been on, so I you know for all of us, it's this all of our incredibly beautiful journeys that we're on in this world, and I just um, I honor each of you and each of us in that in that journey as we you know navigate this world.
0: Thank you so much for that. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer. Uh, it can be <laughs> anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered? So who would that one photographer be and why? And I'd like to add to that, since of your musicianship, a musician. So a photographer and a musician.
1: <laughs> How about, oh God. Um, you know, there's a really interesting gentleman that I'm really am fascinated by. And I must say, he's not a photographer. He's a painter. Okay. And his name is Funterwasser. Have you heard of him? No, uh uh-uh. Yeah, he's an extraordinarily (laughs) gifted man. He was an environmentalist back in the 50s. His paintings, his museum that is, uh, you know, in his honor in Austria, Vienna, is really an an extraordinary place. It's one of these great pilgrimages I would like to make in this earth that I would love to go to the Unterwasser Museum in Vienna. He believed in a different form of architecture. He believed in a different way of life. He believed in roof gardens, tree gardens on your roof, trees growing out of your windows. He believed in being surrounded by nature, not being isolated in it. And that's what we've done in our cities is that we've become isolated from nature. He wanted to do the exact opposite. He wanted nature inside the cities. So he was a very unique character. His paintings are just extraordinarily beautiful and colorful, his use of flow of color his entire life is really off the hook and someone that, that is such an extraordinary deep dive would be his life and looking up Hunter Wasser. And it's really, he just, and that even is a, uh, you know, made up name. That's not even his, his real name. So it's just a really unique individual that I find, you know, extraordinarily valuable in terms of his approach to life. He would paint entire buildings, with all of his extraordinary shapes and lines. He didn't believe in straight lines. Everything was curved. So he was a very Dolly-esque kind of figure, but um, with a very strong environmental, you know, drive and component to him that um, he knew we needed to take care of Mother Earth. And um, he was way, way, way ahead of his time. That's neat. And how about a musician? Um, On the sonic level, on the ambient level, I would probably fall in with someone in the nature of Brian Eno.
0: Hmm, okay.
1: In terms of what his exploration of music and what he brought to his work, I mean, his partner in a lot of these, you know, programs and a lot of these albums that he created, you know, Brian Eno was, you know, the producer behind Josh Tree. And, um, you know, it's a different, um, it's a different language that he was looking to insert. He did the same thing with the Talking Heads. and really brought a different set of rhythms that he introduced to them and really created some extraordinary work that was, again, so far ahead of its time with David Byrne. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of that music, you know, was all coming from, you know, Niger. So it's really extraordinary, these rhythms that he pushed into it. And Then what he did, of course, with U2, and then what Daniel Lanois, his partner, who's also an extraordinary ambient musician, what he eventually went on and did with Peter Gabriel in So, And I just think that these men helped bring some extraordinary landscapes. You know, some of the most extraordinary albums from Bob Dylan, Bonnie Ray, Daniel Linewell was behind the helm producing those records and really brought something unique to their work, as well as being an incredibly unique artist in and of themselves. And then what Brian Eno has done experimentally with art, what he's done with self-generating art, and it generates art, you know, in relationship to his music, so he had these I think it's called 14,000 Paintings, where the sound of the music would create abstract art. And there's exhibitions with this. So it's just really interesting what he's been able to do in that space and really, um, you know, change, you know, the ambient music in that sense. And, you know, of course, starting in Roxy Music and going from there to, to ambient music and then production, he says, quite an extraordinary journey in his life as well.
0: Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you for making the time for me this afternoon. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. It's been a tremendous honor talking to you and absorbing your photographs and your life and what it is that you've created. I'm just, I'm just, you know, honored to be amongst, you know, many uh, people that you've spoken with. And Ellen, you know, Friedlander is a lovely soul. And she was really, you know, I honor her and, and the work that she's done and um, you yeah, know, it's just been really, really great. It's been a wonderful getting to know you and, and finding out good friends of mine that have known you for thirty years. Going all yeah. the way back and the writing that you've been doing, you know, for all this time, it's like, my God, you know, it's such a extraordinary career that, that you've had. So it's it's very fortunate for me and blessed to be a tiny, you know, blip on that extraordinary life of of yours. So I thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you.
0: Thanks to Colin for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting colinfindley.com. And if you want to have a chance to win a new Fujifilm X100V, submit some of the images you've taken at home over the past weeks and months to a photo contest that I'm involved with in conjunction with Fujifilm America, DxO, and Viewbug. The theme of the contest is your world right now, light, shapes and moments and just like it says we want to see what you've created while you've been home find out more by checking out the show notes or visiting the website i look forward to seeing what you've made if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow you can also subscribe to our youtube channel and our mailing list on the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Ian Ferranda, Ken Deemer, Harry G. Bezel, Mark Thomas, and Phil Turnbull for their recent contributions. Thanks for helping us. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge of making great photographs and another way for you to support the show. And if you found that you can't find every episode on the show on whatever service you listen to podcast, download the Candor Frame app. Which is available for both Apple iOS and Android, and because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Iberian X. And this is The Candid Frame.